This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be having... We're going to be having some fun tonight. We are in a series where we are looking at tough questions through biblical eyes, and we're looking for biblical answers to those questions. And tonight's question is, why can't we agree that love is love? I think it's a very poignant question. It's one that society is asking. It's one that Christians are challenged with every day. Why can't we come to the agreement that love is love. Now, there may be a short answer to this question, but I'm not going to give it tonight. I think we need to handle this with wisdom and compassion. Uh, It's a weighty and complex question, and uh, maybe some people even in this room are wrestling with same-sex attraction and some of the the complex feelings that, um, that come with it. Also, because the sin that battles inside of me personally may be different than the sin that battles inside of you. I don't have the right or authority to give my own personal opinion on this. So we're going to look at Scripture because the Scripture does have authority over all people in all situations because it is written by the Creator of all people in all situations. And so we're going to look to Scripture to cut through confusion with clarity. And I will say this, that... This is a subject we need to handle with compassion and with love because that's how Jesus would do it. And disclaimer, if you're in the room and you're like, this might not have been my night to show up. I'm kind of wishing I didn't come tonight. It's okay. Jesus loves you and the people that love Jesus love you. And as a disclaimer, brace yourself because scripture is God's truth, and it grinds against all of our sinful natures. And so we're going to get into the thick of it tonight. So is love love? Now, when society puts this on bumper stickers and paints it across murals on walls and stuff like that, they are communicating that love between anyone is equally valid, equally beautiful, and equally right. But they're not talking about just any kind of love. They're talking about a very specific kind of love, a romantic and sexual love. And so this phrase, when, whenever you boil it down, they're ultimately saying that, that any love should be allowed, people should be allowed to, to date, have sex with, marry whoever they want to. That's what the expression, love is love, is trying to communicate. And the greatest expression of this kind of love is sex. Now, after all, love is really good, right? Shouldn't more love in the world be a good thing? How could love ever be wrong? Well, maybe let's start with society's definition of love itself. If you were to Google the words define love and hit enter, this is what would come up. It would say that love is an intense feeling of deep affection, And I'm pretty sure that every movie and song and everything else lines up with that definition that we see, that love is an intense feeling of deep affection. This is the cultural definition of love. 
But if this is the definition of love, dealing with the question, why can't we agree that love is love, then a Christian's gonna have two issues with that phrase, if this is the definition. First of all, it's used to give validation to relationships within the LGBTQ plus community. And they're using this phrase, love is love, as a validation that those relationships are good. And the idea of love is love is saying that love is the highest moral good. It is right because it's love. And love is this wonderful, great thing, maybe even arguing a God-given thing. So it should be celebrated, these deep and intense feelings. It also, this slogan implies that love is the most important kind of loving relationship that someone can have. And like I said earlier, and its greatest expression is sex. But it's only one kind of love that people can experience. There's love for parents. There's love for children. There's love between brothers and sisters. There's love for friends. There's a lot of different kinds of love that are powerfully displayed in the world. And if we kind of strip the motto down to what it's communicating, ultimately it's meaning that you should get to have sex with whoever you want if it can, if it can be defined as love. So here's the first problem that a Christian has with the phrase love is love, is that it makes each individual the judge of what love is. Because who determines if their relationship, these deep feelings of intense emotion, who determines if their relationship is love? The individual does. So if love is always morally good and it's the individual that decides if it's love, then the individual becomes the judge of what is good. Did y'all follow that? Do you see the danger in that? Every individual gets to have their own unique standard of what is morally good. So to claim it's love because I say it's love, therefore it's good because I say it's good, is to accept that there is no moral standard higher than an individual desires. The individual becomes the judge of what is good. So here's where we have a yank the e-brake screech to a screaming halt on the highway of why we would struggle with the phrase love is love if the individual is the one determining what love is. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 5. Thus says the Lord... What he's going to do is he's going to compare two different kinds of people. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, who turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So someone who trusts in flesh, who trusts in people, who trusts in, in human reason is going to find themselves very dry and not being able to withstand hard times. Now, what's the comparison? Verse 6, or verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So someone trusts in the Lord is blessed, and they have, they have a source to draw on that never runs dry. 
Let's come to verse nine. So we're comparing these two outcomes. Why wouldn't we always trust the Lord? If the outcome is so good, why wouldn't we always trust God? Why would, what would drive us to trust in our flesh? And this is why we as Christians can't agree that an individual should get to decide what love is. Verse nine, the heart is deceitful above all things. Proverbs 21.2 says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Wait, wait, wait. My heart is deceitful? It's trying to, it's trying to deceive me? Wait, why is my heart trying to sabotage me? Well, let's keep going. And it's desperately sick. It's incurable. It's totally wicked. It is hopelessly unable to be morally upright. So the world just needs more love, right? Not if it's love that's poisoned by a corrupt human heart. Verse, the third phrase of this, who can understand this corrupt human heart? Who can understand it? It's irrational. It doesn't function according to what is logical. The human heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So there's two truths that we can walk away with this from. First, Christians must not base what we ought to do by what we feel like doing because our heart's deceitful. That is an anti-Christian mentality to just chase our feelings. Galatians 5, 16 through 17 says, walk by the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, our heart, are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. So first, we cannot base what we ought to do by what we feel like doing. And two, as Christians, we are not our own judges of right and wrong. We can't be if our hearts are so sinful. Our beliefs and our affections are not our standard. Culture's do's and don'ts are not our standard. Not even love itself is our standard. For a Jesus follower, God is our standard. And we have to submit to his definition of love. What is God's definition? If love is not intense feelings of deep affection, what is love? Let's turn our Bibles to 1 John. That's not the Gospel of John. With the Gospels, it's 1 John, way in the back, close to Revelation. If you've gone, made it to Revelation, just flip back a few pages. You'll hit one of the three Johns. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 7, and we're going to work our way through a handful of verses. Beloved, let us love one another. Oh man, everyone can get behind that, right? Let's grab that phrase. Let's put it on a pretty scenic picture, crank up the Instagram filter and post it because everyone can get behind that phrase. We should love one another, right? But let's keep going. For love is from God. Why should we love one another? Because it's from God. But this changes everything. Love has a place of origin. It has a source. It comes from somewhere, and it's not man. It's not people. It's not humanity. It doesn't come from the human heart. It comes from God. And if it's from God, then God is the one who gets to define it, who gets to set its boundaries, 
who gets to express what it should look like because it's from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And third, love is a dead indicator of who has God living in them. It's like a big blinking neon sign. You see, a lot of people can act lovingly, but it's God and a Christian that displays true, unconditional, untainted love. Verse eight, anyone who does not love does not know God. So the opposite is true. If people are not, if someone is not displaying love's attributes, then we know that God isn't living in them. But keep going. Here we go. Here's God's definition. And it's one of the most important, mysterious, and clear statements in the Bible. God is love. Now, it doesn't mean that we worship love, but we worship a God who all of his goodnesses, his moral attributes, his affections, and his character can be summed up into one word, love. So we've just taken the word love and we've, we've elevated it from feelings and we've taken it all the way up as high as it can go to say that love itself is the moral quality of God. Culture doesn't get to define God's character whenever they want to so that they can define it according to their sinful hearts. Love is not love. God is love. Then John reminds us what God's love expressed looks like. Verse 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How did God show his character, his qualities, and all his goodnesses? That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. This is how God expressed love. This is how God manifested his character. This is what real love looks like. And John is using it to teach us how we should love, display God's attributes and character to one another. And notice true love is not expressed in sex. It's expressed in sacrifice. You want to find a dividing line? That's a clear one. Love, when it's expressed, gets close to the person who is loved. True love chooses the undeserving. True love gives life. If you want to read about expressions of true love, look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient, love is kind, etc. This is how God expresses love. This is how God's people express love. So how can we have real love in us? 1 John 4, 13 says it. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. God in us because he has given of us, given us of his spirit. God's spirit dwells in us. So what will it look like? When we love someone, it'll look like Jesus' character. That's what it looks like. 
Human love is not the highest moral good. God is the highest moral good. Love is not strong feelings of attraction. Love is God's very character. The clearest expression of love is not the sex and suicide of Romeo and Juliet. The clearest expression of love is the passion and bloody sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Loving doesn't make a Christian. God makes a Christian loving. So the first reason that we can't agree that love is love is because no individual has the right to judge what love is. Love is objectively defined by God. It's most clearly seen in his people and it's expressed as his character. Nothing less or anything less is a hollow imitation of it. Two, love is love makes human beings idols. So if love himself, by his Holy Spirit, is dwelling in us and it's pouring out of a Christian, who receives this expression of God's character? Well, throughout 1 John 4, it says one another, that we love one another. But how does that, how is that different than what everyone else in society is saying? Of course we should love one another. The 60s, that was like the motto, is everyone should just love everybody. That's still the motto. Everyone should just love everybody and the world would find peace, right? What makes a believer different? Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. What makes us different? Matthew 22, we're going to begin in verse 35. A lawyer steps up to Jesus and he's trying to trick him. And he asks Jesus this question, verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 6. And all the faithful Israelites in that day would have quoted this twice a day. Have you ever thought about this phrase? all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, each one of those individually is an all-encompassing statement. If someone said, I love you with my whole heart, what do they mean? I love you with everything that I am. If someone says, I love you with my whole soul, what do they mean? I love you with everything I am, with everything in my mind. It's everything I am. It's a triplicate. It's to the third power. It is all-encompassing of a believer that there is no love in reserve for anything or anyone else but God himself. God isn't just added to a list. I love this person, this person, this person, this person, and I love God. The first commandment that Jesus affirms is that all of our human love, every ounce of it with nothing in reserve, is for God alone. And here's the reason that we can't agree that love is love. All a Christian's love, devotion, and honor is to him, is to Christ. Whoever receives our love becomes our God. God is jealous of our love. Our love being given to anyone or anything else is idolatry. And it's at this point, now that Jesus has laid this groundwork, all your love belongs to him or is idolatry. And then he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
Remember what John made clear. The love that God calls us to give one another is never our own human love. It's always God's spirit in us loving them. Now, I love this. This was so cool. It blew my mind. and gave me chills today. The, the little phrase, the Greek word that's translated like it right here. The second is like it. The love for your neighbor is like your love for God. Get this. This word is used nine times in the book of Matthew. The first eight times, 100% of the time, all eight times, it is used by Jesus when he is loading up to give a parable. He is about to teach on something that is invisible and mysterious, so he gives an analogy or metaphor that is understandable and visible to explain the first. Are you following me at all? Right? So Jesus will say, here is a kingdom truth that's hard to understand. Like this, there was a man who found a treasure in a field. Like this, there was a servant who his master came to him and did this. He's always using this metaphor to, to describe what is mysterious. The visible love that Christians pour out on others is merely an illustration of their devotion and love for God. When we're loving other people, God's love through us for them, it is not our human love. We have given it all to the Lord. But we are illustrating how we love him by how we love people. Let me give you, a, let me give you an illustration of how I'm illustrating Many times in the NFL, your above average field goal kickers were not originally football players. Do y'all know this? Most of the field goal kickers are not amazing at tackling or throwing the football. Most of them were pulled out of soccer because this trait that they have that makes them really good at kicking 40, 50 yard field goals was because they are an outstanding soccer player. Our love for people is an overflow, a side effect, an illustration of our heart, soul, and mind's total devotion to the God that we serve. Are you following me? And the second is like the first. A supreme love for Christ is our focus. We give him all of our fickle human love and worship. And he, through his spirit dwelling in us, loves others through us in a way that reflects his character. That's profound. I like what one theologian says when he says, the most loving thing that we can do for others is to love God more than we love them. For if we love God most, we will love others best. So what becomes as a result of taking our love that only God is worthy of and putting it somewhere else. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter one. What is the result of removing our love for God? What is the outcome of putting our love up for sale to whoever will make us happy and stir up feelings of affection? And the short answer is that we will exchange it for something far inferior than God himself. Romans chapter one, verse 18. Paul comes in strong. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All unrighteousness, all ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Whoa. God is not playing around. He is judging and bringing wrath on those who suppress the truth. The phrase suppress the truth means they are actively covering it up. They hide the truth within themselves and they hide the truth from themselves. And what is this truth? Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What truth are the ungodly and unrighteous suppressing? The knowledge of God. The knowledge that he exists in his eternal power and divine nature. Psalm 19, 1 through 4, unpacks this idea that if we look at nature and creation with an unfiltered, unbiased look, it will reveal that there is a powerful, divine creator. And the proper response is worship. Verse 21, but instead of worshiping, what has happened? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. Right here, this is the main accusation. This is the main indictment, condemnation against us, against people, against me and you. We chose not to prize God above everything else. We chose not to give him our first and whole devotion and honor and glory. We withhold praise from the one who is worthy. Verse 22, what happens? So they became futile in their thinking. Their thoughts became worthless and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Willful suppression has made us foolish. We fatally exchange loving a superior immortal God for his inferior creation. And this is our great sin, all of us. We're always chasing what is not God, hungering for what is not God. Now today our idols have different shapes, but they are the same idols. People may not kneel in front of a stone goddess, but they'll kneel to pornography. They may not leave their babies on a fiery stone altar in front of a god of wealth, but they'll let their baby leave in a garbage bag behind a clinic to further their career. Idols like these and the many ones that you and I are tempted by are an ever-present black hole tempting us. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up. That is a terrifying phrase. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Now the word here, lusts, is not just sexual. It, lust is wanting what is forbidden. It's every desire which prizes creation over its creator. Three times it says that they exchanged, and three times it says that God gave them up to exactly what they want. That's terrifying. That is, God is completely abandoning the unrighteous to what they want. 
completely abandoning them to the consequences of what they want. And it's the first string of judgment in their lives. Now Paul gives us one example of the kind of sin that will infect a society which has suppressed the truth and exchanged their worship. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Consumed with passions. Notice the participants are experiencing real, powerful feelings. Maybe it's kind of similar to the feelings that culture uses to define love. Paul describes homosexuality as an example of idolatry. And right here, just as a side note, the word that you see here, men for men, is signifying the biological gender, not the age. So any arguments that this is talking about pedophilia or talking about sexual abuse, although that is sin, it's not what Paul is talking about here. It is very clearly talking about homosexuality. But that's just his first example. All sexual sin is prizing creation, prizing self over the creator. Why did he stop and talk about that one? It's because it's serious. You can listen or you can turn if you want. We're going to come right back to Romans, so keep your finger there if you turn with me. And go to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, God made mankind in his own image and after his likeness. He created them, and he created the male, and he created them female. And then in verse 28 of chapter 1, it says, God blessed them. And then in chapter 2, it's almost like the story zooms in to the creation, and it's beautiful. Chapter 2, verse 22. I'll start in verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. How beautiful. Of all the creation, he recognizes something like him. He knows that nothing else will fulfill the the desire in his heart that God put in him, but God made him a partner like himself for a mutual fulfilling of each other. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God fashioned men and women differently on purpose. And in marriage, they are spiritually and sexually submitted to his design and his order. And right here, this part in Genesis 2 is what Jesus brings out in Matthew 19 when he defines the correct relationship between men and women, the correct romantic and sexual relationship. One man plus one woman within the covenant of marriage is the God-commanded and God-blessed design, and it's the proper context for sex. Any distortion of this created order is a defiance and rebellion against God. 
So why are people suppressing the truth about God that we've been reading about in Romans 1? Because if they admit there's a creator, they would have to admit that there is an objective moral standard and an intentional design that their heart's desires don't line up with. They want to do what they want to do and they want to lust for who they want to lust for. So in their sin, they ignore creation's cries and suppress the truth. But Paul isn't just accusing those in sexual sin as as rebelling against God and against his authority. No, he intends to get all of us into the spotlight. All of us are in the hot seat. Let's keep going. Romans 1, verse 28. It says, And since they, talking about sinful man, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Let's see if we peg any of us in here. Evil, covetousness, and malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We are all sinners. And we all have desires to make idols for ourselves. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idol factory. We are quickly creating something to worship apart from God. And yet God is demanding total allegiance. Our hearts, our minds, our bodies, and yes, our sexuality, all have to come into submission beneath our creator, our king, his authority and his design. So a Christian can't agree that love is love because it prizes a sexual relationship over a God who is worthy of all our love and it defies his authority. For believers, all the love expressed to others is an illustration of their supreme love for God. So having brought up the very real reality that all of us create idols and all of us are sinful, not excluding homosexuality, but including it. We have to stop looking at others and start looking at ourselves and come to the very real conclusion that we are in trouble. Has Jesus been misrepresented by unloving and uncompassionate Christians? Absolutely. And this is why it's important for us to reflect Jesus' love Turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. How would Jesus treat any of the people in the LGBTQ plus community? He would treat them like any other sinner. Here in John chapter 8, Jesus is confronted with a sinner. It's the woman caught in adultery. The scribes and the Pharisees are at it again. Let's start in verse 3 of chapter 8 in John. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. 
And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of the Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say, Jesus? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. I have no idea what he wrote, but it would be fun to speculate. Verse seven, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. When Jesus challenges them with this, Hey, if any of you don't have sin, you get to throw the first stone. We need, to, we need to correct how we think about this. We are not, Jesus is not saying her sin isn't that bad because it's only as bad as your pride and greed. No, Jesus shines a spotlight on them and he's saying your pride and greed are just as foul and wicked and defiant as her sin, as the one you're accusing He's not elevating her. He's exposing them. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So how would Jesus have treated this woman had she been caught in a lesbian relationship? With compassion, with truth, and he would have called her to righteous, holy living. That is how Jesus treats us, sinners. Jesus said that he's a doctor and he came for the sick. Who's the sick? <laughs> All of us. Jesus doesn't play softball with sin. In fact, it's quite the opposite. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, people are telling you that it's a sin to commit adultery, but I'm telling you, it's way worse than that. If you just look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart and God is gonna hold you accountable for it. If, you're, if your eye causes you to sin, if your eye is causing you to look lustfully at someone, gouge it out and throw it away because it's better to enter heaven with one eye than it is to enter it with sin and stand before God. Jesus doesn't let any of us off the hook. No sin is not dealt with justly by God. The same Jesus that died on the cross out of his great love for the ones he came to cure. Do homosexual sin send a person to hell? It's a very clear answer. Just as much as every other sinful desire that's not atoned for at the cross. Now those, those who are struggling with this sin rationalize their lifestyles by saying they were born this way. And I've got news for all of us. We are all born this way. We're all born sinners. 
When David tries to track his own sin back to see when he first began, a, began to be a sinner, he tracks it all the way back. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He can go all the way, all the way back to his conception, except he was conceived by sinful parents and their parents and their parents. Sin is spiritually hereditary. If you haven't left Romans, go back to Romans 3. We just came from Romans 1, so turn just a couple chapters. Romans 3 is a terrifying chapter. You start in verse 11 or verse 10. It says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. That's me. That's you. That's all of us. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But there's hope. Jump forward to verse 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, if you're just getting there with me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. Out of his great love, Jesus came to redeem sinners. We can't put the spotlight on anyone except ourselves because we stand before God needing grace desperately. First Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11 or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. The first three are sexual sins. This gets us in trouble. Sex is an idol. God's design for marriage and sex is perverted and disregarded in Paul's day, just as much as it is today. But if you kept reading, the next thing you would read is verse 11. So he just lists all the sins and all these people that are sinners. In verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. But you are washed in the body of Christ, are redeemed adulterers in the body of Christ, are redeemed thieves, and addicts in the body of Christ are redeemed homosexuals. In the body of Christ are redeemed sinners destined for hell by the grace of God, saved through Christ and his expression of love for us. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. God calls us out, but I'll let you know something. He calls us out to war. You've seen that the river current, that if you're a Christian, you've seen that the river current that you used to enjoy, that you used to flow with easily, is the very one that's headed for hell. And it violently opposes the one who saved you and the one who loves you, you most. And you have begun as a Christian to turn into the current, to push back against the flow of everything you used to love and stand for. And when you go against the flow, you discover quickly that there's three forces opposing you. This is coming from Ephesians chapter two. I'm trying to stay close to scripture tonight because it's our authority. 
Ephesians chapter, chapter two lists three forces that are slamming into you when you decide to start going against the flow. Ephesians chapter two, verse one says, and you were, before Christ, you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you were once walked, following the course of, number one, this world, and following the, number two, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience. So you're turning against the current of the world. You're turning against the current of Satan himself. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the, number three, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So we're going against the current of the world, of the devil, and against our very own sinful human hearts. There's a saboteur in the camp. And the traitor is wearing the mask of innocence every time we pass a mirror. The wolf in sheep's clothing is in our skin. Our sinful hearts are working from the inside while the world and the devil are working from the outside. How do we put sin to death? Here's the last place we'll turn to tonight. You're already in Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. How do we put sin to death, like it says in Colossians 3? How do we not give in to our desires, like it says in Romans 13? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. Paul is comparing a Christian to the world they just left. And he says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Number one, how do we, how do we fight in this war? We put off the old self. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to sting. It's going to take daily discipline. But we must starve our flesh to death. We have to identify what are those influences that are coming in our life that tempt us to sin, and we have to, with great prejudice, dig them out of our lives. Yes, it will mean that you lose some hours of entertainment. It will mean that you don't go to the same places, do the same things, search the same searches, hang out with the same people, but we have to begin to violently remove the old self if we're going to begin to press against the current faithfully towards Christ. John Owen says, be killing sin or else it will be killing you. Number one, put off the old self. And number two, put on the new self. We live out our new identity in Christ. We're creations. We're new creations, it says in 2 Corinthians. Our identity is his righteousness, also 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we are in his eternal loving favor, Ephesians 1. We live out our sacrificial love for our God. We marinate in his presence, allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our minds with his word and wash us daily. We remove the old and we live into the new. So perhaps you're hearing what the Bible says about sin in your life. You're not sure where to go from here. God is asking you to trust your sinful, unfulfilled desires to him. 
He is calling you to trust that Jesus' love and satisfaction is better than the love of anything or anyone else. So I challenge you to consider what must be put to death in your life? What worldly influences do you need to cut out with great intolerance? Who are your distractions? What have you exalted above your Savior? And I challenge you to consider who you need to talk to. James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Elevate and enjoy the freeing experience of no longer living with secret sin in your lives. Expose it, name it, confess it, repent from it, starve it. And I challenge you to press into your relationship with your Savior. Choose a deep, supreme love for him and know his grace, know his love, know his commands, know his freedom. John Newton, once a slave trader who came to Christ and fought the very industry that he used to live in, once said, though sin wars, it shall not reign. Though it breaks our peace, it cannot separate us from his love. Heavenly Father, there is no shortage of weight that comes with this subject because it's affecting real people that we really love. Lord, I pray that we would exalt your character every time that we love the people around us. I pray that we would deal compassionately with those that are trapped and slaves to sin. I pray that we would speak truthfully, that we would be one blind beggar showing another blind beggar where to find bread. And I pray that we would look inside of ourselves, that you would challenge us to make you the king on the throne of our affections and everything else would fall away so that we would love others best and so that we would give you all the praise and honor and glory you deserve. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.